0: As we look at this great prayer of John 17, I invite you to enter in, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, with your holy imaginations. Let's enter the scene. It is now night, dark night. Somewhere between the upper room and the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has taught his apprehensive disciples the necessity of abiding in him. And as they approach the threshold of the garden, Jesus pauses. He seems to be anticipating something. The great hour he has come for is upon him. So he turns to where he has always found help and strength. Jesus lifts his face to heaven. The moon's light silhouettes his sober countenance. His voice becomes husky and intimate. Father, he pauses again. Father, the hour has come. Jesus knows his life and its timing are in the Father's hands, but it has been his lifetime habit to tell his Abba everything. So he tells him this. Father, it is here, now, time. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. Jesus had prayed this prayer before. At the beginning of this week, some Greeks had come requesting we would see Jesus. To this, Jesus had replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Clearly, Jesus understood that the glorification of God's name required the ultimate sacrifice from him. And in anticipation of this hour, Jesus experienced real apprehension. Now my soul is troubled, he had groaned. Yet a certain deep passion, a divine hope, gripped his life. When I am lifted up from the earth, he exclaimed, I will draw all people to myself. Now, inside the garden, all that advances upon his soul again. Yet in this hour, his utmost concern is that he honor his father, glorify your name it is the son's deepest desire that the father's heart be intimately revealed in his suffering jesus presses in i brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do now father bring me into the glory we shared before the world began Christ's commitment to the cross is resolute. He has set his face as a flint. He will bear the iniquity of the world. But he needs this hope to know that he will be reunited with the Father once he has accomplished his will. Father, hear the earnestness in his words. Bring me into the glory we shared before. Those words should make us gasp. But truly, none of us understands the splendor that belonged to the word before he became flesh. Christ emptied himself. He left behind all his divine privileges and his Father's embrace to become human, slave, criminal. Father, glorify me with the glory we shared before the world began. If we can only know that splendor, if we can only know that cost, it will change us forever.
1: Jesus prayed, For you, my Father, granted him, your son, authority over all people that he, your son, might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Christ, meaning the Anointed One, or Messiah, whom you have sent. Jesus is about to die. A horrible, ignominious death. The suffering will be real. He will descend into the darkness of helpless despair, By human calculations, he will certainly not be killed in the line of honorable duty. He and his cause will be dishonored and utterly defeated. His enemies will scoff in his face, celebrate their victory, and find pleasure in his painful demise. But in Jesus' prayer, He is not praying for faith and courage. He already has that. And by his claim to authority, he is not vowing to take revenge on his enemies. Instead, he is claiming and celebrating victory. God has already given it to him. He is about to be stripped of any human measure of dignity and value, but rather than seeing the cross as a setback, He celebrates it as a badge of his divine authority. This authority he has over everyone will not crush them. It will save them. He knows in the depths of his soul that his defeat will be and already is an infinite victory. Let's notice the amazing faith and confidence evident here. Jesus is not thinking, well, I I hope it works out okay and, and everything goes according to plan. He doesn't say, Father, please give me some kind of last minute deliverance from this coming defeat. No, he claims victory, complete victory in this defeat, and thanks his Father for it. And he celebrates that victory even when technically it hasn't happened yet. He enjoys the victory, especially for what it means for his own, his people, his friends. It means that by giving his life, he gives life to others. In a world where might makes right, and the victors make the rules, Jesus does the unimaginable. He wins by losing. He submits to the life takers because he is the life giver. He accepts human hate in order to give divine love. The question for us is, are we Jesus' people? Are we the ones the Father has given him? Can we claim that eternal life, that the eternal life Jesus talked about is ours? And can we, like Jesus, celebrate that eternal victory ahead of time? The answer, according to John 3.16, is a resounding yes. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And John answered the question even more emphatically in his first letter. He said in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Like Jesus, we can celebrate the victory ahead of time. Even before we face whatever tests or trials lie ahead, we know that we have eternal life. It's a certainty for those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah of God. In John 17, Jesus
2: is close to departing from his disciples to be reunited with the Father. He realizes he's going to a place of privilege and peace, which means that his departure puts his friends, his disciples, in unique danger to the suffering of the world. So in verses 9 to 11, he prays for their protection. For most of us today, protection is probably a top concern. As you read this text, if you're like me, you probably wonder, Protection from what exactly? My first thought is the obvious. Protection from external forces outside of our control, from injuries and accidents, natural disasters, to the more extreme, pandemics, warring nations, or maybe more recently in American society, shootings at schools. And of course, yes, Jesus does offer protection to us from tragedies and evil. He knows the enemy is seeking to devour, consume, and inflict pain. Yet, in his prayer, when speaking to the Father about his disciples, Jesus communicates this very specific desire of his. He says that they may be one as we are one. Perhaps Jesus is keenly aware of our eagerness to look and point at the destructive ways of our world while ignoring the harm that we cause one another. That sometimes the deepest wounds we experience are in community from those closest to us. In this prayer, Jesus' desire for us is protection rooted in oneness. He prays that we would live in such a way as to show his glory to the world. Church family, may our love for one another display the unity that exists between the Father and the Son, a unity that goes beyond shared beliefs but that seeks to thrive together.
3: Good morning, church family. Friends, hear the word of the Lord from John 17, verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of my joy within them. Church, I have a question for you, and I'm needing some responses. So kiddos, if you could help me out, and, and bigger kiddos as well. What does joy mean? What is a word that describes joy? Elliot. He raised his hand. It means what? Happiness, yeah. It means what, Isaac? Smiling in your heart. Oh, I love that. Bigger kids, anyone else have an idea? What does joy mean? Joy is, yeah. What? The bliss of sleep. sleep. Amen. Amen. Joy is. Joy is God? Is that what? Amen. Friends, we have so many things. Yes, 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 yes. Joy is. Joy is happiness. Joy is the bliss of sleep. Joy is smiling in our heart. Some may say joy is energy or gladness. Joy is, right? That's what joy is supposed to look like. Friends, that's our definition of joy. And I wanted to give you just a glimpse of what possibly the meaning of joy is for Jesus when we hear of joy in the Bible. Joy is, friends, to have joy. God's favor. Joy is the awareness of God's grace. Joy is God's grace recognized. Joy is the plan of salvation complete. Joy is God's original plan to walk with us, to talk with us, and to live forever in communion with us, joy. The promises of joy we see everywhere in the Bible. When the angels came, they told the scared shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It doesn't necessarily just mean happiness. It means the awareness of God. God's grace recognized the plan of salvation complete, the joy for all people, the angel said. Even in the womb, when Mary went to go visit her cousin and John, the writer of this book, when they were together, John jumped for joy, not just gladness, but the awareness of God. God's grace recognized the plan of salvation complete. John jumped for joy. In this world, we can have both joy and grief. John tells us very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, family, while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. An awareness of God's grace. Now is your time of grief, family, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. God's favor over you. So how do we get this joy? John tells us, now until, now until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. So what do we do with this joy? John again tells us, I have told you this so that you may have joy An awareness of God's grace, God's favor upon you, may be in you that your joy may be complete. The very next verse, friends, says this, my command is this, love one another. That is what you're supposed to do with your joy. You take this favor, you take God's grace recognized, you take this plan of salvation complete, and you love others and share the joy. So I have this slide for you, the final slide, if we have uh, the opportunity to share this. And what I am wanting to do is this, and I will cue you, but in it we are inserting your name. And so I need your help. I want you to say your name out loud when I get to you, because this is God speaking to us. So listen to the word of the Lord. And when I cue you, say your name out loud. Jesus said, I am on my way, God, but I say these things, prayers of comfort, prayers for protection, prayers for fortitude, for while I am still in the world, so that may understand and experience the full measure, not part, but all, of my complete and perfect joy for blessed be God for the word. Amen.
4: In his prayer, Jesus says, Father, I'm praying not only for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me because of my disciples and their witness about me. Jesus says, You know, it's quite powerful when we ponder what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for his potential followers who will believe in him through the witness of his current followers. This is not an if his followers were to grow beyond who were already present here and are his followers, but that when his followers would grow, it would be... Because of the disciples and because of their witness of love about Jesus. Jesus also says in another, in another instance that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Yes, that includes the Catholics. Yes, that includes the Methodists. Yes, that includes the Mormons. Yes, that includes the Muslims. Yes, that includes non-believers. That includes Seventh-day Adventists. Yes, that includes even our own children and our families. Everyone will know that we are Christ followers by how we love. Jesus continues to ask in prayer for our oneness, our unity, just as he and the Father are united in one heart and mind. He wishes that his followers would also be united in one heart and mind as such. But you may be wondering, how can we be united in a world full of differences? Increasing differences. How can we be truly united even within Christianity, even within Protestantism? There are so many differences. I'd like to suggest something different this morning. Perhaps the problem is that we have been too focused on agreement as a measure of this oneness, to the point that we are so conditioned to only see, and even some instances, we only want to see differences in others. We only want to see differences or disagreements among us rather than we what we share in common. The thing is, yeah, disagreement are bound to happen in human life. No surprises there. It is the inevitable byproduct of our engaging with other points of view. It's the natural byproduct of us engaging with all the many interpretations of the same book. But on the other hand, when we refuse to let it divide us, disagreement can be the catalyst for a deeper and shared engagement with Christ. Perhaps we should regard disagreement as something that goes hand in hand with Christian Unity. Not the kind of unity that's characterized by agreements in theology, ethics, or polity. Don't get me wrong. We should still do the painstaking work to explore the very areas in which we would share in common. We would find common ground. But unity, my friends, can never be imposed. That only leads to totalitarianism. John Coakley, a Methodist pastor, says that it is never the human experience of harmony that creates the image of the divine Christ and places it within us. No, no. But rather, it is always the presence of divine Christ within us that creates the harmony And if the love of the Father, the way Jesus says it, for the Son and of the Son for the Father is the cornerstone of our universe, then our love for one another should be the driving motivation that unites us all. God's love is the only possible hope for our true unity. Jesus prayed for this. But the question is, do you believe in this love?
5: On his deathbed, Scottish reformer John Knox requested that John 17 be read to him every day. These very words that we have heard from this prayer of Jesus, as John neared the end of his life, brought him great comfort and strength. This is the longest recorded prayer that we have from our Jesus. Amen. We listen in on this intimate conversation where we can see the heart of Jesus for his Father and of God for Jesus. Jesus himself faces his own suffering and death. There's something so sacred about hearing the words of someone facing the end of their life. I sat beside many bedsides as death hangs heavy in the air. With my own father, I sat with my pen and my journal, and I recorded the words that he said. I didn't want to miss any of them. His words about life, his God, last words of love and wisdom for me, I can go back and reread those. Words that mean the world to me. I did the same with my mother-in-law, as well as elders and members that were so precious to me. I imagine John overhearing this prayer of Jesus and wanting to capture every word that he's just gripping onto each word willing himself to remember thankful for the holy spirit who will help him recall but writing these things in his mind and heart when someone is facing death we hang on every word and each one has great meaning this prayer reflects the longings hopes and desires of a dying man and what are his words You've just heard some of them, and Jesus ends his prayer with his heart's desire, his longing. If you've wanted to know what Jesus thinks about you, if you have wondered how the God Almighty feels about you, listen to his prayer. Father, I want them to be where I am. I don't want to be away from them. I want them to be with us, God, for them to know that the love that we share can be their experience of love too. I want them to have this. We all know this longing. One of the strongest instincts of the human soul, Benjamin Morgan Palmer once said, is the longing to be with those we love. He says this, Do you not know all about the wrench? When it comes, death comes and tears away from your embrace the ones who have been been joy to you in your thoughts of your dead have you ever experienced the strange hunger in your heart when you long to bring them back and fold them within the embrace of your affection As you kneel in your grief by the fresh-made grave and your thoughts go down into the low and dark abode where they are sleeping, you could with your very fingers scrape away the earth that hides them from your sight in this longing to hold fellowship with them again, in this longing to embrace them. Our Redeemer understands, friends. He shows us here that he is bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. He longs To be with us. He longs, friends, to have us with him. Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am. So what is Jesus' desire? To be with you. To be with you. For you and I who are weary of this world and worn out and worn down to see him for who he truly is for his presence is his glory and his glory is found in his presence and it's all wrapped up in one here we are he says i want you to experience this this love this glory this experience of me the same glory that was found on the mountain in exodus with moses where he communed with god that was then transferred to the tabernacle where god was tabernacling among the people That then in John 1 took up residence, tabernacling in flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I now desire that my presence, my glory, would be in you. I in you, that my followers would truly experience my glory in them. Jesus might say to us, my disciples will think of this as separation because they're heartbroken that I'm going away. And truly my heart longs for us to be together exactly as we are now. Yet this separation will only be for greater unity. I myself will be in them as I live in them, my glory dwelling in them. Jesus, the Lord of all, who has lived in love and glory before the creation of the world, as this prayer says, wants you to have the same experience of presence, of glory, of love. Jesus wants to live in you, longs to be in you, now and in the time to come. I shared with you last month this question that I ask myself frequently, what does love require of you? before decisions, before things. This love and glory are inseparable. In this passage I hear the question is, is God glorified, that is lifted up, loved, exalted in me? Jesus desires to be in me, in you. God's glory and presence and life, just think of that, in you. He says, I want you to not miss out on this experience that I've had from the beginning of the world, I want you to have it too. What a gift. This glory. This amazing God.